How do we how do we start these things? I think usually recap. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Then, oh well, do we don't we like say what we're who we are? Ah <laughs> uh, yes we ah uh, yes the info about yes, who we are. Yes yes. I think we usually talk about how we're, we're called pop mm -hmm. DNA. And we talk about the roots of everyone's favorite pop culture works. Or, you well, know, yeah, it might not be. There are favorites. <laughs> they're, no, they're your favorite. It's like, it's the same principles of the John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt universe. Oh. Our favorites are your favorites, too. Oh, That's okay. How that works. I see, I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I wonder if that's the same in the Netflix holiday cinematic universe. A place, Probably. a place where there are four Vanessa Hudgenses. A place where there are thirty thousand wreaths in every, <laughs> in every, every home room of the home. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about, unfortunately. No. One day. One day. We'll do. <laughs> I think, you know, I think that we really do at some point, we're going to need to talk about the Netflix holiday cinematic universe again. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to. But I mean, that's for another day. <laughs> also, listen to our our watch along track for the four Hudgens of Christmas. What's that? The one four called? Hudgens of Christmas. Um, that's what it's called. Princess yeah. Switch. No, yeah. So we have. No, that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have commentaries for all three Vanessa Hudgens Netflix Christmas movies. <laughs> and two. So take a Two listen. of them are on our Patreon. And the Night Before Christmas one is free. And then one of them was just released as a bonus episode in July of 2020 and then we also have a what? full in-depth episode on the christmas prince trilogy in the words of maui what can we say except you're welcome <laughs> i mean what did we talk about last time last time in case you missed it last time on in our little hamilton series we talked about the road to broadway broadway and and all of the Shakespeare references that we see in Hamilton mm -hmm. and kind of a comparison of Lin-Manuel Miranda and William Shakespeare mm -hmm. and a lot of real nerdy theatrical yeah. stuff that was really fun. Just like modern yeah. theater, Shakespearean theater, all the theater. We are going to further discuss theatrical elements. So I think it's really, uh, really interesting. You know, I think any time that you, that, that you, as if I design costumes all the time, but any time <laughs> that, um, that, you know, like any production has, has the need for costumes that are, you know, historical, I think it's really interesting, um, you know, whether it's film or whether it's theater, um, because, you have this question of like how much how much historical quote unquote accuracy do you need to have mm -hmm. and how much leeway do you have within that to you know make it fit with your vision make it fit with the story with the characters with the actors so 
I think that totally. I think that Hamilton is a really good example of how of of basically how to take liberties with historical accuracy. Yeah. But before I get into that, I wanted to just uh, briefly mention the uh, Costume Indus- Industry Coalition, which is an organization that is supporting New York City costume workers. Because, of course, during this time when live performances yeah. cannot be happening because of everything, <laughs> the, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so that has put a lot of people in the live performance industry out of work. Um, and so I wanted to mention the Costume Industry Coalition because they are... Um, so they have a couple of ways that um, you can we can support them. Um, there's a video on YouTube that just came out today, the day that we're recording, um, by Bernadette Banner, who is a fashion historian, a YouTuber, and she's actually a former theater costumer. Um, so this the video. Uh, all of the ad revenue from that video is going to go to this organization. And then um, the coalition is also selling um, patterns on their Etsy shop to make your own versions of the Hamilton costumes. So all of the proceeds from those sales will also go to supporting um, this industry. So we'll have links to all of those things in our blog, but I just wanted to mention that because, um, yeah, support the arts. It's important. That's such, it's such a fun idea to get like in this world where we're all, many of us are stuck at home and people are getting more into creating. It's such a cool idea to have patterns to make costumes instead of selling other things. I just love that idea so yeah, much. Yeah, it's really cool. It's so creative, too. But the video that I mentioned, so this was actually, like, perfect for <laughs> for our discussion today. So in this video, she talks to, or she has, like, interviews with um, Paul Taswell, who's the costume designer for Hamilton, plus several other people who worked on the costumes for the show. And so they just gave, like, a really cool behind the scenes look at like the thought process that went into designing the costumes and like kind of what goes into making um, costumes for certain characters and it was just really cool if you're at all interested in costuming or historical fashion or anything like definitely go check this out so we'll have a link to that as well I'm gonna follow that link myself after do it and also just Bernadette Banner in general is like, she might be my favorite YouTube channel. She's at least like up there. Like she's just like incredible. Like she, um, she does like a lot of historical practice sewing. So she'll like, sew like these Victorian or, you know, historical inspired garments and she sews by hand and she uses uh, an 1890s 
sewing machine and it's just so cool like it's so it's wow. so like niche and nerdy and I love it uh-huh. <laughs> I love it so much but she has those are the corners of YouTube that yes I the, the so the niche, niche yes it's so great uh so she has actually another video where she talks about the costumes in Hamilton and uh, this, we'll have a link to this one too. It's called Unpacking the Hamilton Costumes, How to Take Liberties with Period Costume. So, cool. yeah, so she really breaks it down. Uh, she says, the design of Hamilton is successful in that despite its modern concessions, it doesn't harm the audience's suspension of disbelief. The audience retains this indescribable limbic understanding of the 18th century roots of the story, which are vital to pulling the rather single-faceted founding father narrative, we've been told, forward to be reevaluated in a 21st century light. So she also points out that the costume designer, Paul Taswell, his background is in Shakespearean stage costuming. So he brings a lot of that to the designs. And then she also asks how much of the history should be preserved and how much can be sacrificed for the sake of modern relevancy. A constant awareness of the history is vital, but how is this done? And of course, the answer is through silhouette. (laughs) And in that, Hamilton nails it. Silhouette is really key to conveying the time period for these costumes. So if we look at the Schuyler sisters' dresses, for example, in the first act, they have very full and wide skirts, maybe not quite as wide as as they would have been historically, but wide enough that you get the idea, and very tight, structured bodices. Banner speculates that there might even be some light boning in the bodices to kind of give the shape and feel of 18th century stays. The general shape of the gowns evokes the 18th century, even though in the details and the fabrics, they're not exactly historically accurate. Right. And then also the the women, uh, the female ensemble members' costumes, um, I think are like even more of like, a genius achievement. Um, so they're like very <laughs> versatile. So they also evoke the 18th century women's wear. But what we have is what they wear on top looks very much like 18th century stays. And then they pair that with breeches. So they can put a jacket over it and they can become soldiers or male like right. a male crowd of some kind. But then without a jacket, they just have their stays and the silhouette is clearly a woman, which I think right. is really interesting. Um, and I've been using the word stays and that might not be a word that everyone is familiar with. So I can explain it a little bit. <laughs> I, guess it, I guess it just doesn't stay with Oh you. boy. <laughs> so... So just in case um, you didn't know, so stays are basically a precursor to what we think of as a corset. Um, Stays is the term that's used for a fully boned laced bodice 
worn underclothes from the late 16th or early 17th century until the end of the 18th century. And this uh, terminology is from uh, the fashion history blog, The Dreamstress. The post goes on to say that the term stays probably comes from the French estayer to support because that is what stays did. They turned the torso into a stiff inverted cone raising and supporting the bust and providing a solid foundation on which the garments draped. Despite their heavy boning and how stiff and constricting they may seem to modern eyes, stays were originally seen as more informal wear, as opposed to garments with the boning built in. So stays were more commonly worn in England than in France. And since a large portion of the population of the colonies was... English or from England that kind of transferred over to there as well. Um, 18th century visitors to England consistently commented on how even the peasants wore stays, though they might only have one pair of stays. Right. So many middle and lower class women, so like servants, field laborers, they often would not, especially like later in the 18th century, or possibly throughout, I'm not quite sure, but they uh, they often didn't wear anything over their stays. So the stays would function as outerwear, kind of like what we think of as a bodice now. So sure. the women ensemble members in Hamilton having garments that have the look of stays, though, as Bernadette Banner points out, it's clear that they have some type of like stretchy fabric in the sides to allow for yeah. movement, but it has the look that evokes that middle and lower class women's style of wearing your stays outside of your garment, which I think is so interesting. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of actors, too, if they're like in rehearsal, they're, they'll wear something that evokes it be, because it adds to the character mm-hmm. as well. So there are like rehearsal corsets and rehearsal like mimic stays a little bit that I know a lot of actors wear to to get into character yeah and I think it helps with like it's I think it's just designed for the women ensemble members like it's designed so like brilliantly because you know like like I mentioned they have like that stretchy fabric in the sides and they're probably made out of like some really stiff cotton material so that like the structure of it looks like something from the 18th century but when you look closer you see all of the modern concessions that have been made so that it's actually usable for because you know they're like dancing around the stage and they need they need right. they need to be able to bend their bodies in ways that you wouldn't be able to if you were yeah. wearing stays so I just think it's really just so cool <laughs> and so niche. Um, Absolutely. Um, but then with the other costumes, so the the style and the cut of the clothes also evolves. And you see this more so in the women's costumes, um, somewhat in the men's, but more in the women's, um, I think, is where it's most noticeable. When the clothes evolve from the 1780s to the early 1800s, when you have the silhouettes of the women's dresses moves from having the natural waist and the wide skirt to a raised waistline 
and a slightly narrower skirt, which we associate with the Regency style. But I guess in the U.S. it would be the Federalist style. And this... uh, this evolution of the costumes also works as a storytelling device because it shows the passage of decades. Right. And then uh, an interesting thing that, that, um, that Banner points out in her video is that George III wears the most historically accurate costume in the show. And it was actually like they looked at particular paintings of King George III and based his costumes off of the paintings. And, you know, he's kind of like a, I guess that's like another element of the show that's not quite, it's not quite supposed to be realism. Cause like he just kind of appears and disappears <laughs> and he's always just kind uh-huh. of like this. He's like the idea of King George and not actually. Yeah. Right. But he, so like his costume kind of, also becomes a storytelling device because this portrays sort of the old world of England in contrast with like the simpler and the less ornate and bedazzled (laughs) costumes of the American colonists. (laughs) Another really interesting thing about King George, he is the only character to wear a powdered wig in the show. So powdered wigs for men and then powdering of the hair for women would have been standard even for American colonists of like the upper and middle classes in the 1770s and 1780s. So the decision to have all of the actors with just with their natural modern hair serves a couple different purposes very effectively so it helps to distance the heroes of the story from the quote-unquote villain and then it also is a visual cue to the modernity and the inclusive casting of the show absolutely and then I'm going to talk some more about the costumes so (laughs) Yay! So there's this really cool um, interview that Paul Taswell did with the LA Times um, where he talked about the two main guiding principles that he had in his costume designs. So first was period from the neck down and modern from the neck up. So just like I talked about with how all the actors just have their normal natural hair. And then uh, the second was to strip away all of the embroidered detail of the 18th century so the audience can just move past the distraction of artifice so that they don't have this. Because I think like with really, with really ornate and accurate period costuming, it can kind of put, put the character at a slight distance from the audience. So by kind of like stripping that down, we're able to connect with the character more without that sense of like, oh, like this is historical. Like, I don't know. Absolutely. So then in the article, they point out that actors of color inhabiting the costumes of their ancestors, oppressors, provided a powerful and paradoxical subtext. 
So Taswell says, um, we discovered that the clothes lay very comfortably on the actors. They could relate to the costumes in a very contemporary way with a street exuberance and the beauty of contemporary face and hair. It also informed how they were playing the roles. So they talk about um, David Diggs in his, uh, especially in his role, especially in his role um, as Jefferson, like the, the design for Jefferson was very much based on Diggs's personal style, like looking at like his hair, how he has that great hair (laughs) and just like the way that, that he wore the clothes very much influenced how they did how Taswell designed the Jefferson costume he he says um we wanted to take advantage of that and what came together was a realized version of Jefferson the politician as a rock and roll star (laughs) and like that's totally true like like Jefferson's costume is something that I could see Prince wearing like it's so much like that persona I think of Prince when I see it, too. And I think it's so hard not to, like, David Diggs has such an incredible stage <laughs> he presence, does, yeah. too. I, I would imagine it would be impossible to not design specifically inspired by him just because he's such a powerful performer, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And then he also talks about how um, each of the three Skylar sisters has a very distinct color palette, so we always uh-huh. we always see Eliza in that kind of blue teal, bluish teal color. And then we always see Angelica in in like that kind of goldish or it's like right. it's not it's more like I guess it's kind of orangey, isn't it? It's kind of that yeah, warm Yeah, and then she has those beautiful reds. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, there's like rust and orange and it's really pretty and then of course Peggy's in yellow um (laughs) 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 and Peggy um (laughs) but then even when Eliza in act two when Eliza is wearing the paler raised waistline dress um underneath she has a, a layer of that same kind of light teal blue and then her sash is also that color so it's a consistent consistent color scheme which I mean that's like such a basic thing but it really it really works for distinguishing a character totally and then uh this last part of the article I thought was a really interesting quote throughout the whole design process the smartest thing for Taswell to do was simply to get out of the way stripping things down so that his work could breathe more um, which, like, you totally feel that, like, not just with the costumes, but with the entire show. You feel this sense of, yeah. like, yes, there's a lot of thought and artistry that has gone into this, but they're also just kind right. of letting it be, like, letting the actors do their job and letting the audience think for themselves and interpret things and understand things without, you know, having it laid out for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And you see that in the writing, too. Like, you see that in... Absolutely. I think there's even, like... um, I think I've even read an interview with Miranda where he said, like, I trust my audience to understand, like, 
we don't, you know, we don't uh-huh. have to like spell things out for them. Like I trust that people are smart and will, f- and will understand things. So. And there's something to be said too. I think in the theater medium that, hmm, how do I say this? If, if it's not clear to your audience, you're doing it wrong. Like the, the process of watching a show shouldn't be like laborious, right? right? Yeah. You should if you're putting all these elements in to this medium of theater and your audience isn't getting it, then maybe you're not doing sure. your job, yeah. right? Like maybe you think on paper, oh, I've done all this stuff. And then <laughs> you watch it and your audience is like, oh, no, I didn't know. Any of that. <laughs> right. And you're like, but it's but it's in the notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, but but no one knows. So it doesn't matter. It's interesting to think about kind of the staging and the choreography of Hamilton because it's simplistic, but it's also really complicated mm. in kind of a similar way of the the costuming um, yeah. and the lyrics, like, de- which get pretty... Deceptively <laughs> simple, I would say. Right. I, not only because I'm biased and I am a dancer myself, but when I watch Hamilton, like... I'm obsessed with the choreography um, by Andy Blankenbuehler. Um, and it has a similar historical root again. Oh, shocking. <laughs> this is a, this a is historical a show, play but, um, has historical roots. What? No what? way. <laughs> but I guess I didn't even really know how until I was researching for this. Um, I just knew that the, the dance was, had impacted me positively, mm-hmm. but I didn't necessarily know why. The interesting thing about it is that um, he he uses his um, his actors or his dancers to become important plot mm-hmm. elements. So the dance um, the dancers become the hurricane, mm-hmm. the storm in the song Hurricane. They become that chaos. And even the wreckage of the storm, they move, I forgot the word for chair, <laughs> they move chairs, they um, they kind of create that destruction of these um, physical elements of the plot, that, or of the set that would be easy to replicate like you're not gonna um you're not gonna destroy the expensive set pieces you're gonna destroy kind of the chairs Mm -hmm. and the things you can go and grab new ones of they become that hurricane swirl and not even necessarily in the way that you would imagine like if you told a group of actors to become a hurricane (laughs) and they did um it might be that sounds like such a like theater class exercise like Time to be oh, a hurricane, it is. guys. Oh, <laughs> if I told you how many hours <laughs> oh, of experimental ther- oh, theater yeah. I rehearsed. I did theater in high school. Like, yeah, we uh, that was a oh, thing. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Such a thing. Feel the, the wind on your face. Uh-huh. But you had to, like, sizzle like bacon in a, <laughs> in a skillet. Oh, yeah. Good Fun stuff. stuff. Anyway. Um <laughs> The important distinction here is that it it creates the chaos of a hurricane without, like, no one is dressed like uh-huh, a tornado. Sure. No, you know what I mean? No one is like, I'm the raindrop. It's more... <laughs> it's more metaphorical. chaos. Yeah. Absolutely. And we talked about this a little bit earlier in um, episode one, but they're in the... Um, 
in the bullet during the duel, um, the the dancer and actress Ariana DeBose mm-hmm. becomes the bullet, mm-hmm. um, and she's, I believe, the actor that you mentioned earlier who kind of symbolizes mm-hmm. death throughout. And just using, like, instead of, you could have just had a sound effect of a bullet. Other productions would have perhaps done it that way, but to have a whole, it adds to that that portion of the the scene too, because we see Hamilton uh, do that really incredible um, rap slash slam poetry piece as he mm-hmm. dies, as he contemplates death while dying, and I think the choreography adds to that surrealism. There, yeah, adds to that piece of. Because very often you see dance with slam poetry, right? You see dance certainly with rap. And to use it in that heightened moment, I think, was just incredibly powerful because it gave... Hamilton has never been a quiet man Mm -hmm. until the um, right up to the very end. And to give him this moment of fierce reaction to the idea of death uh, and to do it with, with a dancer as well is really important. And I can talk about it forever. Um, There's also, after these moments of intense chaos, there's moments of stark, intense stillness, Mm -hmm. which are really important, too. So we see that as Burr comes to terms with what he's done. As he sings the song, as he sings the lyrics, I'm the villain in your history, there's nothing but kind of a white light on him. And the uh, the dancers just watch him in the same mm. way that people would be watching him, right? At this moment, um, and so you get you get that self aware moment of I've done the many different um, complexities of the moment for Burr, where he's not only realizing what he's done, but he's also realizing coming to terms with why he did it and why he was misinformed in doing it, and he also through the dance of it or lack thereof, can feel the eyes watching Mm -hmm. him in that moment. And I just, I think it's a really beautifully done, again, um, deceptively simple moment. Especially for such a public event that's happened. This is the part that I maybe didn't know, that Blankenbuehler actually used Impressionist art to inform his choreography. So... I thought that was pretty interesting. Apparently that was his jumping off point. Um, He did an interview with Backstage where he notes that in an impressionistic painting, the surrounding is blurry. Hmm. So for me, it's about figuring out how to make the surrounding blurry in a way that informs focal points. Audiences, he explains, usually focus on... I just tried to combine uh, focus and vocalist. (laughs) I'm a vocalist. Vocalist. So he explains that audiences usually focus on the vocalists Mm, in musicals. Um, They don't look around at the surroundings, but they can feel the framing device Mm. that kind of informs what they're looking at. But it it not only tells you where to look, but also how to feel about it through the, the emotions of the dancers. And I think that that framing device is so subtle Mm -hmm. that I would ask, I would ask listeners to go back and watch it again. And really, I had to, I went back and looked at those moments and the, 
the focus that's built is just so intense again in the same way that this was such a political or such a public you know story Mm -hmm. like all of none of Hamilton's life at least in the context of the musical was private Mm -hmm. you know everyone's watching him all the time and I think that that intense focus it also mimics um Hamilton's own almost absurd focus on his own life you know his own his preoccupation with his protagonism yeah yeah (laughs) he's definitely Hamlet yes exactly (laughs) As Eliza notes, he's paranoid in every paragraph. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's a little bit self-obsessed. Yeah, just a little. Um, and obsessed with what he's mm-hmm. doing as well. I think that's an important distinction because sometimes he isn't obsessed with what it is that he is trying to do. But you can't divorce that from ego either. But that's a different discussion. Yeah. <laughs> I promise I won't go into psychology right now. Um, <laughs> Later. <laughs> Much later. Um, The dancers also, I think there's also such, in in the way that they focus our attention and let us know the feeling of the piece, they certainly do that in moments of anger Mm -hmm. and kind of chaotic fights, um, specifically between Angelica and Hamilton, who are fighting through letters often. Mm -hmm. They're not even in the same room, but it's still incredibly intense within the context of the musical i'm just i don't know i'm just obsessed with it um my final my final statement is that when we see aaron i'm gonna go into this with the lyrics but when we see aaron burr break when he has responded to hamilton and responded to hamilton and responded to hamilton and upheld kind of his decision making skills and then we watch him break Mm. during the the song the room where it happens he finally loses the ability to cope Mm. with him Mm -hmm. he finally loses his battle with in some ways what his friends think of him and what um who he wants to be versus who he's perceived as and this is done in the dance as well so as as burr begins to sing that he wants to be in the room where it happens and it builds to the end of that song his movement is sharp and knowledgeable, mm-hmm. but also f- and planned, but also fervent and angry right. with that pulsing action to it. And I think dance, I'm getting chills talking <laughs> about it, but thinking about kind of how, how dance helps us to know just how much he needs this release and how much he needs to do the actions that he's going to mm-hmm. do it is it's no longer an emotion that's within his body he's communicating it out through dance and oh goodness <laughs> i'm i'm obsessed <laughs> aaron burr sir oh my goodness have you, who's act, who's have you who's who's seen um there there's a video with uh Le- i think it's with leslie odom jr where he reenacts that got milk commercial with Aaron Burr where he's like have you seen that (laughs) no no Uh, I've only seen him in the nationwide commercials where like that's the first time I've ever happily turned into a nationwide commercial (laughs) I would listen to him sing anything Uh oh my goodness oh yeah I think he's currently leading in um on the 
on the Pop DNA Film Award ballot. He's currently leading for best performance. So, oh, good, yeah. interesting. I mean, I'm. I mean, I'm not. Uh, yes, of course, I'm voting. For, <laughs> yes. Did oh, you vote? Anywho, <laughs> not okay. yet. And remember that the Pop DNA Film Awards bonus episode will premiere. I think January thirtieth. Yeah, January thirtieth. So yeah, make sure you listen to that. Absolutely. And then next week's episode is going to be very wordy. I mean, we're yeah. always wordy, but we will <laughs> we will specifically be talking about words next time. Words, 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 words. words. <laughs> Maybe this is Hamlet. <laughs> Are we talking about Hamlet? That well, but that song is wait. What is that song from? I think it's from My Fair Lady. Words, 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 words. Oh, I was right. I I just but said yeah, words, it's words, it's words, from words, it's from Hamlet, Hamlet too. Yeah, yeah. but mul- multiple Maybe we're all multiple Hamlet. theater references. Um, <laughs> so we're going to look at the history and evolution of. Mr. Miranda's brilliant lyric writing. Aaron's probably going to combust at some point. Um, uh, <laughs> and then uh-huh. <laughs> and then we're also going to look at how one very wordy TV show <laughs> influenced influenced the writing and the development of Hamilton. And I think it would be kind of fun to do a little guessing game to see if people can guess what show we're talking about it's you can probably find out pretty easily but if you guess if you have a guess or if you know what show we're talking about come tell us on social media i think that'd be that'd be fun we'll we'll have like a a, we'll have a post or something that you can comment on if you if you have a guess or if you know for sure it rhymes with Schmilmore Girls. Yes. No, that's not. <laughs> Imagine if Gilmore Girls had influenced Hamilton. Um, but spe- <laughs> speaking dream. of social media, <laughs> <laughs> like what I did there. I can only think of like, I feel like Perd Hapley would say something like that. Like, speaking of social media is what I'm going to do right now. <laughs> Perd Hapley would say that. <laughs> Be sure to follow us on on Twitter and Instagram. Take a journey to the popdna.blog for links to everything we're talking about or have ever talked yes. about. It's all up it's there. It's all there. Uh-huh. There's even a, a page with a reading list of every book we've ever mentioned. Well, I think we need to I think cool. we need to update it because we've talked about more books, but that's fine. Take the Pop DNA reading challenge. Yes. Yeah. Read every single book we've ever talked about. <laughs> or just every single book. In the world. Read all of them. Do that. <laughs> and in the world. Uh, but that about wraps it up. Our usual plea to you, dear uh-huh. listeners. Be kind to each other. Wear your masks. And also, bundle up. It's really cold. I mean, yeah, here. I'm just going to assume I it's mean, cold where you if are. It's, yeah, if it's not cold where you are, then... Like if you like, then kick rocks. If you like live in the southern hemisphere, then you're probably like, um, you know what? No, bundle up even if it's hot outside. <laughs> Sweat out those toxins. 
Um, and, yeah. uh, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye.